1: Hi, I'm Mike Bush.
2: I'm Paul New.
3: And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA.
2: Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. So if you have a question, reach out to us at podcasts at AOPA.org.
4: And if you like the show, subscribe on Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast.:
2: If you'd like to get on our email list for our monthly newsletter and weekly maintenance stories, just grab your mobile device and text the word "savvy," that's SAVVY to33777, and a mail bot will uh, ask you for your email address and add you to our list. Again, text "savvy S A V V Y to33777 to put yourself on our list.
3: One of my AMP students got his tickets, he went through the the check ride, the examination, the practical over a year ago and and then has been going back and forth with the Fisdo and Oak City and Airman Standards trying to get his paper so that he could uh, get into a program at a school. What
2: paper is he does he need? He does, needs I mean when I a temporary when I took, license. When and, I took my A&P practical, it expired. The, 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 oh, I see. Yeah, it expired, he got a temporary, and he never and got expired. his
3: licenses. He never got. He took his A April oh, of last my. year, and his P in the summer, and then there's you know it's just been back and forth, and you can't get into the FISDO. You 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 know they won't answer the phone. They don't answer emails all the time. Oak City says it's the FISDO. The FISDO says it's Oak City. They both point to the DM uh, the deep uh, the examiner. DME, yeah, and it just goes around and around, and this poor guy f- finally got somebody to change some digits in a computer and issue the temporary uh, again, and hopefully he'll get his permanent. Another temporary, yeah, but it was just painful. He was about to call his congressman and say, "Can you do something?" Which is a final, desperate move. I, I just you know, this not being able to go into a FISDO and talk to somebody face to face uh without an appointment is, is painful. And not answering the phones is equally painful.
4: And not I, necessary. That's None a nine that eleven
3: thing and it just seems so passe. Can't we yes, go past that now? It doesn't
4: it's not helpful.
3: I can if I can go into a drugstore and, and and fill a prescription or yeah. you know, talk to somebody at the DMV, why can't I go into the FAA?
2: Well, I I know most of the FISDO inspectors are working from home still. Why? Well, at least I know that's true at the San Diego FISDO because I had some...
3: Did they stop paying rent on their offices and they don't have a desk anymore? I mean... I don't
2: know.
3: (laughs) (laughs) There's just no reason that I can think of. I'm sure there
4: are no FAA people listen to this podcast.
3: I know. I don't want to make any enemies. Go right ahead. I might not know the entire story, but from the end user perspective, it's, it's very painful. I mean, we need mechanics out there. We need, we need pilots out there. People are having trouble scheduling check rides for the same reason that the DPs are either not working as much or there's not as many of them or <laughs> they're pricing themselves out of the market, but uh, the pipeline well, those, is getting squeezed.
2: Those temporaries are like good for 60 days or something?
3: I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Not that long. No, it goes quickly, so anyway i I hope this is a local problem and not a national problem.
2: I wonder if that's going to affect flight instructors and stuff who who have to do that every two years
3: uh, yeah um
2: yeah, you know you go you, you go through the flight instructor revalidation clinic, you get a temporary and then you're supposed to get the real one and in the mail.
3: Now, I will give a shout out to our local FISDO. Last year, when our IA certificates were up for renewal, one of the FISDO people came out to the airport and had lunch with all of us and signed our stuff. You know, wow. he said, Hey, I'm going to be out here and I'm happy to sign. Oh, they, any-. They,
2: they've always done that. At, at yeah, Maria, where I am well, based. With, yeah. I thought that was
3: always- very nice. And I would buy the guy lunch, you know, I mean, they, I, they that was off, extra they, effort.
2: They take over the airport board conference room and and we all troop into the airport to get our ias signed off every two years yeah back that's, uh,
4: that's great pre-covid when uh, every now and then they would just come by our shop really? and do it on the yeah. spot yeah oh that's nice
2: boy that's that's good sir well yeah,
4: you know they they nice. did an inspection while they were here they used to really like <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe it's,
2: maybe it's, <laughs> in other words a two-edged sword yeah, <laughs>
3: Our first question is from Larry, who is worried about where the rubber meets the runway. Go ahead, Larry.
5: Thanks, Colleen. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, as so many people say, great fan of yours. And Mike, I'm soon to be a subscriber. So uh, uh, I'm really looking forward to getting some time with you. I have a Turbo Alley, Turbo Normalized Bonanza 836. And due to the supply chain challenges last fall, I needed to replace my main tires and my AMP. Said, hey, you can get six ply in, I think, two months, and you can get eight ply in two days or something like that. And I looked in my um, history on that plane and logbook, and it had, had eight ply in it for a couple hundred hours in the past. Uh, my AMP said, be fine. So, of course, went and did that. And then I started analyzing and thinking and started realizing, huh, there's a disconnect between what the POH and the TCDS permit for ply rating. Very explicitly six ply. But when I go look at the Goodyear specs sheet, it seems to require, you know, that uh, the six ply six ply wouldn't be strong enough for the gross weight limit that the turbo alley modification gives us The STC gives it four thousand pounds. In other words, the POH was for seven by six six ply, rated at thirty six hundred and sixty something pounds, but the STC allows me to take off land at four thousand pounds. So Again, I looked at the Goodyear spec sheet, it seemed to indicate six ply's limit would be about 1,900 pounds per tire, presumably 3,800 pounds static load. So, you know, you get, you get the point of the question, am I, am I legal here going to my eight ply tires? I don't have any explicit direction that says I can, but again, when I look at the Goodyear ratings, it doesn't seem like I could, could use six ply on a turbo normalized plane. So that's kind of the question. And then I got into things like, well, will it fit in the wheel well? And I thought, mm-hmm. well, uh a good is uh uh being used on barons. I don't know if barons have the exact same well wheel well as an A thirty six or not. But again, uh saw it was used in the past and felt obviously comfortable enough doing it and now I'm thinking about it. And I go in for annual in a week or two, and I'm sure it could come up.
4: Huh. Well, so I'm not a Bonanza guy. I don't mean that I dislike them. I just don't know that much about them. So I'm not going to give you an official answer, but I'll give you a related answer. The Cessna 210, which I know quite a bit about, calls for a six-ply in the older, lighter aircraft. And then as the airplane got to 3,800 pounds and 4,000 pounds, they up from a six-ply main tire to an eight-ply main tire. You can check the diameters of a six ply versus an eight ply and you'll find they're pretty much the same. And if someone wants to go with an eight ply, I don't see anything that says that you can't go to a heavier ply as long as the dimensions are the same. You wouldn't want to go to a lower ply for one of the reasons you're talking about, the gross weight of the airplane. So I wouldn't even hesitate. I'd put an eight ply on there wouldn't give me any grief at all. And I do think that the Willwells are the same on the Bonanza versus the Baron. Now, someone else that actually studied the question can give a better answer.
3: I, I studied uh, the question. Yeah, I She couldn't raised her, find. Just, just so you know,
4: <laughs> she raised her hand.
3: <laughs> I, I couldn't find a better answer, but I will admit in this public forum that I also went from, uh, I, I increased imply in when I replaced mains on my cardinal at the last annual. I went from four to six, And I did look into it, and dimensionally, it was the same. I heard the six-ply would be a little heavier maybe, but I didn't feel it was a significant change of weight and balance. And I did a a wheel fit check in the gear just to make sure that everything was okay. I find it interesting that the STC for the gross weight increase, well, the STC isn't just for a gross weight increase. It's the Tornado Alley Turbo, and the gross weight is... the a result of that but i'm surprised it doesn't address the the increase in weight and the potential for it, you know the tires to be weighted out i would suspect that they felt it wasn't an issue and that's why it wasn't mentioned in the stc that's all i have to say about it well, maybe mike has something to add the the the
2: only, the only thing i have to add is that if larry is in violation by using a higher ply than I am as well. Oh, we're <laughs> we're all go. guilty. All four of us uh, are guilty. And, 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 You're in good and, company, in, later. Fact, <laughs> in fact, what was it six months ago or something? Uh, I don't know if you recall, but I I, I wound up having getting a oh that's a, right a tire down at Hawthorne. Yeah, and I was in exactly the same situation. the 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 book specified ply rating for my airplane could only be procured in Texas, but they had lots of the the next higher ply rating in California. So guess guess what I put on here.
3: <laughs> and actually, I went to the desert site and looked for your tires, and they are completely sold out of all the models. Yeah. Uh, so you're yeah. right, uh, and I'm. Yeah. I, all I can say is milk your tires, guys. They're they're
4: all on a ship in Long Beach, probably. along with oil filters and a few other things, yeah. cylinders. I don't know.
2: That's terrible. But uh, I, I I believe there's no dimensional difference uh, that goes with the with the ply rating. I think the the dimensions are specified by the TSO.
5: I'd yeah, think... and I was even looking at if it's inflated. It doesn't seem seems that it those those dimensions are at full inflation. I believe so. I think I think I'm okay on the pressure as well.
4: Yeah, use the TLR system for that inflation stuff. You know, you get it close.
3: TLR. <laughs> Here we go yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Tennessee uh, no, language no, requirement. No, no. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, you know, pick, pick a spec
2: that, that looks about
3: right. That looks, that about, looks about, about right. right. Yeah. If you
4: inflate it and they look kind of flat, uh, not like your other ones did, then maybe you want to inflate it to a higher spec.
2: Yeah, I, I yeah, I think I think the higher ply tires do call for higher inflation, and and I always use a higher inflation in my airplane because, on the theory that overinflation is a lot less bad than underinflation is yeah you, yeah you always want to err on the high side err
4: like on the high side uh,
2: cute oh that's i didn't good. mean
5: that uh, fun, but... <laughs> 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 thank you guys so much super helpful always appreciate it yeah,
3: yeah i mean good kudos question. kudos to you for catching that and uh thinking through that problem It's pretty analytic no,
5: oh, Overthinking.
3: <laughs>
4: overthinking <laughs> well, there you
3: go <laughs> no but that's good i mean you're you're involved that's awesome
4: yeah very good
3: Okay, Take well, care. thank you. thanks for calling, Larry. Bye. Our next question is from Randy, who is scouring the world for the right engine. Go ahead, Randy.
1: I, I bought a, uh, a Continental Iowa 360 ES engine from uh, a guy down in, in Guatemala City, uh, and he shipped it up to me. There's no logbooks. You know, the, the serial number says that it's from a 2006 Cirrus, and so the big question is and, and it doesn't have any any magnetos on it so uh, you know it has been sitting in a, a pretty humid environment down in guatemala city for a, a little while i don't know exactly how long don't have any log books can i run the thing i mean can i put it on an airplane and, and fly it or do i have to tear it apart
2: what kind of airplane are you putting it on well I, i'm apparently not a Cirrus or a yeah. 20 which is what the engine was intended for
1: correct I've got a choice either a Skymaster or a uh Cessna 175.
2: Wow. Uh, what what kind of approval basis do you have for putting <laughs> that engine on those airframes?
1: That that <laughs> Got to get one. That's that's another part oh. of the question. you know, I've oh, got to get wow. an approval for it, uh, okay. but Okay. but uh you know, the first part is what I need to do to this thing. So and and to back up a little bit, the approval basis for a 175 would be it's not the type certificated engine, but they did put uh IO three sixties on the the same type certificate, you know, with the T forty ones and the and the 172 XP. So that's that's the way I'm headed with that.
4: Well one of the things that strikes me, just you know, always hits me right off the bat because I see this sometimes, there's no total time for this engine. And the FA wants you to track total times. No they don't. Well, isn't that listed in the uh you got to
2: have the total time of the airframe. No you do not have to make uh, keep track of time on an on an engine unless the engine is one that is required to be overhauled or replaced on a certain timetable which for a part 91 operator it isn't. Yeah, that's always details. I lose look, at, look, details. look at look at that look at 91 uh I am. 417. Yeah. And it says you have to keep time for components only if they're tracked, only if they're life required. Limited. But I was thinking, in law it's
4: okay. Uh, y'all go ahead. I'm gonna. I got. So, look something the, up. so there's
2: absolutely <laughs> no regulatory reason that a Part 91 operator can't operate an engine with unknown time.
3: But there's all kinds of other details so, that he. But, needs to but know. you really
2: wanted to. You really were interested in more in the safety aspects, right?
3: Sure, absolutely. Yeah, that,
1: that, I, that the basis question. I don't want your this question. to be my last flight. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, whoa,
3: well, whoa, well, well, but but Mike, what about things like ads and three three sevens and all that stuff that he has no idea if they've been complied with? I mean, the engine's not legal, right? It's I'm not, not
2: aware of any ads that are based on time and service on a on, no, that, but, engine. on that engine. No, but
3: but how do you know? I I don't know this engine, but let's say it had an oil impeller that needed to be replaced because it was the wrong material. You wouldn't know unless you opened the engine up if that AD had been complied with.
2: Well, he'll have the engine opened up. So. Well, isn't that isn't that true? I mean, if 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 somebody brings an airplane into Paul's shop, how does he know that all of the ads for internal stuff in the engine have been complied with? All he he's got on.
3: he's got maintenance records that show it. He's got a list of ads and their compliance records. But this engine has nothing like that.
4: So during his teardown to take care of that, though. Before he installs it in the airplane, some AMP is gonna take the engine apart, put it together and, and document everything and yes. comply with all
2: the airworthiness directives. So that would take care of that. Colleen, are you taking the position that if an that if an aircraft has lost logbooks, we run into lost logbook situations all the time?
3: I'm i I'm uh, only saying uh, that, that, that he that has you, to uh, verify that the ADs were complied with before the engine is can be signed off to be airworthy. Well, if he yeah, was that's already, true. yeah, if he was intending to do an overhaul, then it it just will happen when he does that. But he didn't say that,
1: right? I'm proposing, you know, could I just put it on the airplane and 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 put some new mags on and um, yeah. you know, run compression yeah. checks, stuff yeah. like that.
4: You mean just bolt it on as is?
3: Yeah, that's what he wants to do. <laughs>
4: <laughs> You're going to have to do a little research or some the mechanic that signs off on this installation because he's the poor, he or she is the poor person that has to make sure this is not a suspected unapproved part. They get all the responsibility for that installation. So they're going to have to satisfy that the airplane is airworthy, not airworthy, that this is an acceptable thing to put on the airplane. So, uh, you know, they'll have to satisfy themselves that what they're putting on and signing off is going to be okay to put on there. So, they may decide they have to do an AD research at some point. You're going in for an annual inspection that will have to be done.
2: Are either of you aware of any internal ADs on this engine that that, that would that that happened sometime after 2006 when the engine was presumably rolled out of the out of the Continental factory? I don't know. I haven't done an AD research on that engine in like. Right, but, but fifteen years. <laughs> in, in all likelihood, there are no there are no such ads.
4: Well, probably not. Uh, you know what what cylinders are on it? Uh, you know, are there any ads on those cylinders? I mean, I don't well, know. I'm, I'm, I I'm assuming
2: looked. I'm assuming that that that's all the original stuff. I don't know that for sure. Obviously, well, that's the thing.
4: That's what you have to look for. You know, as as the installer, that's what you don't know. So you don't know
2: what you don't know till you look.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that.
2: For you know, from a safety standpoint. I think that I would probably be inclined to pull the lifters and take a look at the cam through the through the lifter bores because that's such an easy thing to do, and I would definitely be inclined to pre-lubricate everything up the yin yang, oh, yeah. And and in particular, you could pre-lube the cam through the lifter bores while the lifters are out. Or just fill it up with oil and turn the engine upside and, down. A few and and <laughs> and and then and then I would go fly the engine. And if it's not making metal after a hundred hours, you be you dodged a bullet. And if it is making metal, you tear it down. But again, I, I I this AD thing, I think it would be worth researching whether there could possibly be any ads that were not complied with, because if the engine was manufactured in two thousand and six. I think the likelihood that there are any applicable ADs, unless it, you know, had ECI cylinders put on or something like that.
4: All the more reason to put it on a Skymaster instead of a 175.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I just, just I just want to be a fly on the wall when he asks for that field approval. That's <laughs> what I want to do. You yeah, want that? to do what?
1: <laughs> With
3: what? Well, there you go. That sounds like a solution. Better than, better than I expected, we'd say. So.
1: <laughs> well, now, I, in the end, I may tear it down anyway. But
3: Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds reasonable. Okay. Well, be safe. And thank you for coming on the show, Randy. It was an interesting question.
1: Thank you all for your, uh, your comments and your discussion. It's um, a great show. Really
5: appreciate it.
4: Thanks, Randy. Our next question is from Tom, another greedy pilot, looking for all the power he's paying for. Go ahead, Tom.
6: Yeah, uh, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, thanks so much for having me on. I really, every month, I always look forward uh, to the podcast. Great, great, great uh, service you're doing for all of us. Probably a pretty easy question for you. I know previously, uh, if you had a uh, fixed pitch prop, RPMs an indication whether or not you're developing full power with a fixed pitch prop. And so that makes sense. Uh I've got a 1967 182K uh with a Continental low 470, pretty good engine I believe. And Oh yeah. at sea level at sea level we're developing 2600 RPM and about uh and I live down in Naples, so you know, it is near sea level. <laughs> and uh I'm developing about 29 inches of manifold pressure. So with a constant speed prop, the RPM's at 2,600, which is rated uh, uh, red redline RPM, so we're developing full RPM. And if the uh, sea level pressure's uh, 30.00, I typically show about 29 inches of manifold pressure. So I would assume manifold pressure, since the RPM is where it should be, is an indication of whether or not i'm developing full power and if that's the case if i'm only getting 29 inches of manifold pressure uh is that because uh maybe uh airflow inefficiencies or something like that
1: it's about normal yeah
2: yeah. Uh, you're losing a a little bit through the induction air filter you're losing a little bit more uh, going through the venturi of the carburetor There's there's I mean, there's inevitably some some restrictions to airflow going through there, and and losing one inch at, at, at full power, That that sounds that sounds pretty good, actually, doesn't it, Paul? Yeah,
4: that's about normal. So my my first question was T- T-L-A-R. T, that's all it right, T L A R. That looks about right. <laughs> uh, so what's the? Uh, <laughs> that's
6: a new one. I haven't heard that one. That's oh, oh yeah,
4: we use that system all the time, but only when the situation bears the 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 most you know, intense scrutiny. So what what gauge are you reading manifold pressure on?
6: Well, actually, I've got the uh, steam gauge, the manifold yeah. pressure gauge. But after listening to you guys, uh, my partner and I, my, uh-oh, uh, yeah, it's all your fault. Uh, <laughs> my partner and I just finished, and he is an A&P, but he's an A&P by license only. So we know what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And uh, we actually uh, just finished installing on our own a uh jpi 830 okay uh, we did have a uh we did have a really good uh a and i on the field who uh, uh helped us a little bit emphasis on little bit and uh so it's really working perfect so to answer your question how do i know what the manifold pressure is uh two ways. The steam gauge the, right two ways and uh, mm-hmm.
2: and they agree and they agree wow that's yeah. amazing it's- so he does know what his manifold pressure. <laughs> he does. I'm impressed
5: because yeah. <laughs>
4: you know the old analog gauge the the needle width is about an inch and a half, so I just wasn't <laughs> wasn't sure what you were reading on. But yeah, an inch below uh, ambient pressure is actually not far off of what I typically see.
2: Good. Yeah, and and again there are there are inevitably uh, some some losses in, from outside ambient going through the. First of all, the induction air filter, then making a couple of turns in the air box to go from horizontal to vertical and then going through the carburetor, which is a restriction.
6: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that, not, that, was, that was what I was wondering.
2: Your
4: your manifold pressure, though, to part of your question is that absolutely is a, an indicator of power capability on that engine.
3: It's your primary oh for power. God.
4: Yeah, yeah. Unless you're a peak.
3: <laughs> oh that's right
4: well half of his engine is going to be lean a peak so i don't know how he, you're going to calculate but he's, that but
2: one. he's prob- probably not lean a peak when he's at full power so hopefully well, hopefully not
6: <laughs> you know i just want to really thank you guys uh what an awesome podcast and i appreciate the input on my question but uh it's so great to have you guys as a resource and as a uh, you know I was a commercial pilot, but that doesn 't matter here but
2: uh we won 't hold that against you
6: <laughs> it, right and believe me, I understand that also uh, but I just want to thank thank everybody, ladies and gentlemen uh for what you guys do it 's a fantastic thing and uh, please keep keep uh, keep doing the podcast for us okay
4: We're happy to do it Tom. We appreciate the call today
6: you 're very welcome thank you so much for your time everybody
3: bye bye
4: Our next question is from Jeff, yet another Colleen fan. I don't know why I don't have fans, but Colleen has fans. Those Cardinal people, they're always sticking together. So go ahead, Jeff, with your question.
7: Hi, thanks for having me on. I love your show. I had the pleasure of meeting Colleen and her husband out in California and looking at their Cardinal before I bought mine. It helped influence my decision. And I've watched Mike and Paul on more YouTube videos than. Big fan of all three of you. So I had my Cardinal ferried to El Paso, and one of the squawks was that the CHT gauge was inaccurate and never went above halfway. So I installed a GI-275 EIS while it was there, uh, along with some other upgrades. And when we left El Paso to go home to Greenville, South Carolina, the number three CHT spiked near 500 degrees Fahrenheit on climb out. So thanks to the engine monitor, we knew that was happening. We responded and we kept the we did some adjustments to keep the temperature down. But then thinking about it later, I wonder what kind of CHTs on its way to El Paso with the old inoperative gauge. And I don't have any way of knowing what temperatures it experienced. And is there something I can in, inspect that I should be concerned about?
3: You should inspect your underwear, right, Paul? (laughs) (laughs) I knew Paul was going to say it, so.
2: (laughs) Now we know why he's a Colleen fan.
3: (laughs) No, No, that would certainly get my attention, Jeff. That's that's good. Uh, good. (laughs) I mean, you flew at home, right? So it's still making compression, so... You're good so far. But like like I said before, ignorance yeah. is bliss, right? You didn't know everything was great. And then you put the engine monitor in and you're like, holy smokes, what's going on?
7: Well, I, Sometimes. I could add to yeah. that. Once I got there, it was annual. Then the compressions were excellent. And I sent the oil analysis in after it arrived. And there's no, of course, there's not going to be any cylinder head metal in the oil, I guess. But um, the oil <laughs> analysis was great. And the compressions on the annual and everything visually looks fine.
3: Which which Cardinal is this? It's a 71RG. So it's IO360. Oh, yep. so
4: you're injected.
3: Same engine I have. Yep. And his data is on savvy analysis. So I took a look at the data. I also mailed it to you guys, but I guess you didn't see it. I did not see that. And his his uh, Garmin 275 does indeed show 498 on a CHT. Winner, winner, wow. chicken dinner. Wow.
4: So, <laughs> Man, that's really high.
3: Yeah, it took two minutes uh, from takeoff to cross 400 degrees. He had 15 gallons per hour, which at El Paso is probably fine, a 4,000-foot airport departure. He was making good RPM, and it went for three minutes between 400 and 498 degrees before you could see his... Oh, crap moment where he pulled the power and <laughs> rich in the mixture and the, the hands were moving in the cockpit and uh, he got it back down for the rest of the flight. But you can see on the very next flight after you did the baffle fix, it, it's cruising along pretty good. You kept it below 400 more or yeah. less.
2: My recommendation would be, first of all, to stick a borescope in the cylinder and look at the piston crown if the thing gets too hot and it starts liberating metal the metal is not going to be coming from the cylinder head it's going to be coming from the piston that's the most vulnerable thing in the combustion chamber so what what we tend to see with overheated pistons is is corner melting or, or around the you know the edges of, of the piston so look at that very carefully with a scope. also be alert for for uh, any kind of a pockmarked appearance on the piston crown that might be in indicative of of, uh, of detonation. If the piston looks okay, you're probably okay. the The other concern we have with uh, with very high cylinder head temperatures is the integrity of the head to barrel junction of the cylinder. But light cylinders have very, very robust head-to-barrel junctions. I can't even remember ever hearing of one coming apart, unless the the engine has ECI cylinders on it. There have been some problems with those in the head-to-barrel junction area. But if it has Lycoming cylinders on it or Superior cylinders on it, I would not be concerned about the head-to-barrel junction. But take a real good look at the piston, and if the piston looks okay, you probably dodged the bullet.
3: Be happy you don't have a continental in there, because you would have exceeded the maximum temperature for sure.
2: Yeah, <laughs> continentals red line about four
4: sixty. You didn't even pass red line. Come to think of
2: it, well, not on that flight. But the problem is, <laughs> it was just what you were talking about before. Yeah, this you airplane don't know. been flying around with no cylinder head temperature instrumentation whatsoever. And so the wonder is, well, if it happened like this on this flight, I wonder what happened on the last 10 flights. Yeah, I don't know. If you don't know what the CHT was, it, does it really count? It's like calories at the buffet. They don't list the calories there. <laughs> it's it doesn't like count. The, the tree falls in the forest and there's That's nobody right. there to hear it, right? <laughs> That's right?
3: What did we do before engine monitors, right?
2: <laughs> we were happy. It was a blissful existence. We
4: didn't know why we kept changing cylinders all the time. We just yeah. knew we did. Good questions, Jeff. Well, that
3: was easy. Yeah, yeah that was.
4: <laughs> I think we might have gotten one in a row correct here. <laughs> Our next question is from Ron, whose airplane is making everyone duck for cover. So, uh, welcome to the show, Ron. What's happening?
0: Hey, guys. Uh, longtime listener, big fan. Um, I own a nice 172P model, as you can see behind me here. And <clears throat> I've owned it for about seven years. It's been a great airplane. But in the last year or two, every time the fuel levels are maybe probably a lot, about below halfway after every flight, two minutes after engine shutdown, there's an incredibly loud bang that uh, anyone in the area will hit the deck. And it, it uh, no one can figure out what it is. It sounds like someone took a bat and just hit the top of the wing as hard as they could. So <laughs> I've got brand new fuel caps. The vents are all open. And uh, nobody can seem to figure out what's going on.
4: Well, so okay, this is kind of fun. I don't know that I have the right answer, but I've made up something really good. So we'll see if you like this.
3: Uh, so <laughs> he doesn't want a made-up answer, Paul. <laughs> I heard that.
2: I heard that. No, no, this better, sound... it better better be good, Paul, because none of the rest of us have a clue here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in your 172, you have one vent on the
4: left side on the left wing, correct? right behind the strut, and that vents for both tanks. You have fuel caps that vent, but it takes about three HG for those to actually open. So when you're flying, the top of the wing is in basically a vacuum, or we'll say low pressure. So it takes a lot of change for that to occur. So you have to have a way to replace the fuel that you're burning with air. That's what the vent tube does. You've said you check the vent and the check valve, I assume, and that those check okay. So you have air coming into the tank. We feel pretty good about that because one of the things that I've seen before is that you'll have a restriction in the vent and the tank will actually try to collapse because there's a vacuum. As the fuel goes out, there's not enough air coming in to replace it. So the tank will have, we call it an oil can, you know, the old oil cans that you push and click, 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 click. So if there's a vacuum on the tank and the tank partially collapses and it's a metal tank, then when you're stop flying the airplane and air comes back in, it will pop back into place. It's usually not that loud. But I think yours may actually be the opposite of that. I think when you're flying, you're putting in too much air and it's inflating the tank. So the check valve lets air in the tank to let air in the the vents, in the caps, let air in the tank. The only way to get air out of the tank is a a little bitty, we'll call it a weep hole, in that check valve. And so that check valve has to be oriented with a hinge on top, and next to that hinge is a little bitty hole. So that let's say you take um, cold fuel out of the underground tank and put it in your airplane, and it's a hot day. That fuel expands, and you have to be able to let the fuel come out of the tank or it pressurizes the tank. And that's what that little bitty weep hole is for. Gotcha. I'm thinking that as you're flying, you're inflating this tank. And once you land, air is trying to come out through this little bitty weep hole. And it's little bitty. It's like a number 60 drill bit hole. It's a little bitty thing. So it takes a while for your tank to deflate. And eventually when it does, it has that pop because now it's doing that oil can thing and popping back to neutral. You say this takes about two minutes after you shut down the engine? exactly 2 minutes every time it's i love that okay i could be totally wrong then but let's let's keep going down this path so what i suggest is next time you go fly shut the engine down run out real quick and pop the cap off the top of the left tank and if you hear a sudden rush of air coming out of the tank you'll know what your problem is you're pressurizing the tank well, now you know you have to know why it's pressurizing the tank. When they checked your vent, did they check the position of the vent?
0: They is me. I do most oh. of my... <laughs> so, but, you, uh, you know yeah, a guy. I mean, it looks like it's in the exact right place.
4: How did you determine it was in the exact right place? He used the T-lar method. The t method—that's <laughs> recurring theme on this show. <laughs> so, do you have a do you have access to a copy of the service manual?
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
4: Okay, go in the service manual and there's actually a couple of diagrams of the exact location for that vent tube. And it's real weird. I've seen them in all sorts of different places, but Cessna actually measures the position of some of those vent tubes down to a hundredth of an inch. Now, nobody in their right mind is gonna measure it that close, but it is really important that it get in the right place. If it's too far into the slipstream, you overpressurize the tank and the tube is exposed to possible icing over, If it's hidden too far behind the strut, it doesn't pressurize the tank at all because it's in the turbulence of the strut. There also is supposed to be a foam uh, seal around the upper strut cuff fairing. But anyway, double-check the position of that vent tube. That seems to me to be the most likely thing. Uh, But definitely, the next time you get out of the airplane, jump out really quick and pop a cap, and see if you
2: hear a, a rush of air. Now, the problem I have with this, I'm visualizing this in my mind's eye, Paul. <laughs> and and he, he he's going to shut down the engine, jump out of the airplane, go grab a ladder, start to climb up to the top of the wing so he can open the cap. And as he's getting to the top <laughs> step of the ladder, the tank's going to go bang and <laughs> <he's gonna laughs> fall off well, the ladder. Well, he, so he, may,
4: he may
0: actually, if he, he, he does that, he may. Belt or something. Yeah,
4: he might actually get to see it happen if he's quick enough.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'd so, like to do that. I'm, yeah. I might, might mount a GoPro up there and see if I can <laughs> capture it.
4: So, do you have the steps and handles? I don't see any handle on the plane there. So, you don't have the step?
0: I don't have the steps or handles, but I can get up there pretty quick. Okay. Right. You're young. You can <laughs> Quaker,
2: do that quicker than two minutes. That's the quicker than two part, minutes. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but, so, Paul, be sure the that-
3: You're convinced it's fuel, right? It couldn't be something like a binding flap that lets go at the exact same time each time he...
4: Well, I mean, I I can't... If a bang like that coming from a wing, there's just not much out there. You've got skins and ribs and stuff like that. So it just... Yeah, but something's got to... What's going to make a bang sound? The, The flaps aren't moving. And I assume... Do you raise the flaps after you land?
0: Um. I yeah. They're always raised by the time it's parked. So yeah, I raise them right after I the wheels are touched.
3: And I mean, could he? Does he have a fuel selector where he could select one tank or the other, or just do something different to verify that it doesn't happen by the time he's parked?
2: Yeah, he could, but popping the cap off is way more fun. See, Paul. the The, the other thing that concerns me is is it might it might be the opposite. It might be that the tank is it's got a vacuum in it. And the, the reason, most likely reason, it would have a vacuum in it would be if the vent interconnect line was somehow plugged up. Because it, mm-hmm. because the vent only exists on the left tank and, and the vent interconnect line that runs between the left tank and the right tank over the, the top of the headliner there uh, is essential for venting the right tank. So if it somehow got plugged up with something. I then, did have the uh,
0: vent interconnects replaced four years ago. Ah, that that's uh, the problem then, right? Yeah.
4: So wait, now, do, where's the bang? Is the bang the right side or left side? I thought you said left
0: side. Uh, no, it's the right uh, side. It's the co-pilot side.
4: Uh, yeah, that, very well, because there's no other way for air to get in or out of the right tank. Well, it can get into the right tank through your your cap. It should. So, But you said you replaced the cap. The caps now, are
0: both vented, and they're both brand new.
2: Yeah, so that, that shouldn't be an issue. And those cap vents, are those are like emergency vents only, right? They're backup vents. They're not yeah, they're backup normally, vents. They normally don't pass anything unless there's a right significant pressure differential between the inside and the outside.
4: I think it's about 3 HG. So on the ground, they should open pretty easily. They're just little rubber poppet things. And you said it's only with half tanks.
0: Well, it's it it's more pronounced when the tanks get lower.
4: Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Whether it's a vacuum or pressure, either one, you're going to find out when you jump out and take that cap off. If you beat the oil can pop to the punch, you're going to hear the air when you, when you pop that cap off. And so you're going to know whether you're looking for a ventilation problem, which is almost certainly the issue. You, you've got some ventilation issues going on with the tanks. And this, you know, this is a thing Cessna has been trying to resolve ever since they started building airplanes. All of the strutted-wing airplanes have this. They ended up in 79 on the 182s with the wet wings. They went to a vent tube on each tank, and they still have troubles. Uh, it, different troubles, but you know, they still have troubles. I don't know why they have so much problem in the design, but it is an issue. And yours, uh, 78s and older for pretty much everything, is, is heightened for exactly what Mike said. You have a, a connector from the right tank to the left. And that connector from the right to the left is is the only source, and there's only that one line, so it's a, it it is a problem. But yeah, jump and get that cap first. That'll that'll confirm that it's a vent problem, whether air rushes in or rushes out. Either way, you'll know.
0: Sounds good. Thank you very much.
4: Yeah, thanks for the question.
0: If you're in Oshkosh, be sure and stop by the mobile tiki bar. The Mobile Tiki Bar. Where oh, is we, the mobile? We, we've got to stop by well, there. We will be right? there. We will, we will be at
2: i You don't know what you're asking down, for. So. Paul
3: is a bottomless pit when it comes to mobile tikis. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Wait, I, I don't. we don't even know where the Mobile Tiki Bar is. Well, it's mobile. We'll find it. Colleen knows how to find things.
3: Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think tiki I, tiki I, have, I have seen it before. Paul, we need to go on a little mission to find it this year.
4: We'll be on a mission. So, yeah, Ron, we will find you at Oshkosh. We'll be there all week. We'll find you eventually.
0: Awesome. Sounds good.
4: Keep the mustache. That's the only way we're going to know it's you.
0: (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Thanks, Ron. All right. Thanks, guys. See you later.
3: So long. Our next question is from Robert, whose engine is burning oil nearly as fast as he can add it. Go ahead, Robert.
8: Okay. Thanks, guys, for having me on the program today. Yeah, I have a Cherokee 140, PA 28, 140. And now it has begun using a lot of oil. It's just about one quart per hour of flight. Not only expensive, but I was just concerned it uh, may go downhill from there or whatever. So... I didn't know. I thought I just asked that question. What to? What would be your first choice of action on that kind of problem?
2: Well, if it wasn't a Cherokee 140, I'd say carry a couple of cases of oil in the back. But the Cherokee <laughs> 140 probably can't lift that. So uh, we'll, we'll, I think we're going to have to do something about this.
4: <laughs> well, do you have? Do you have the back seats in it? <laughs> yes. yes. It's okay. Well, yeah, you don't
2: have room for oil then. Um. Okay, so so your your <laughs> your mechanic suggested a top overhaul, right? Oh. Yes, pulling all the cylinders off. Well, that that's kind of the last thing we'd like to see done because we don't like to see cylinders come off, and we particularly don't like to see them all come off. It's kind of highly a pretty risky procedure. So, you know, the first thing that we need to do is figure out high wall consumption is always a cylinder problem. But it isn't necessarily an all of the cylinders problem. So we'd like to try to figure out which cylinder or cylinders are the culprits here. And there are a couple of ways of doing that. One is to stick a borescope in and see if there's like a lot of oil puddling in one cylinder, which would maybe give you a clue that 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 cylinder was was the one that was problematic by the way the the with all this oil consumption going on the 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 consumed oil has to be going somewhere. Are you seeing a lot of oil on the belly uh behind the breather?
8: No, I am not It could be sooty under there or something. I haven't really
2: okay well there there I mean there are really two cases and you need to identify which of the two cases you have there's the most of the time high oil consumption is caused by the crankcase getting pressurized from blow-by past the compression rings on one or more cylinders, which blows a lot of oil mist out the the engine breather and winds up with oil belly, uh, you know, oily belly syndrome. The other possibility is the oil is actually getting burned in combustion, in which case you don't see the oil on the belly, but what you see is is um, kind of a black oily appearance on the inside of the tailpipe as opposed to the, the nice dry tan appearance that we that we normally want to want to see. So by just observing the belly and the tailpipe, you, you should be able to determine which of these two cases that you're dealing with. Do, do you have an idea on that or do you need to go take a look? Well,
8: I guess I'll need to take a look. It was a heck of a bad coincidence that about a month ago the a hole came in the oil line leading to the oil cooler. And it just uh, blew oil everywhere underneath, and it took us a, a lot of soap to clean that off and yeah. replace that those two lines. But that was just a coincidence, I guess. I thought maybe after that happened, it was going to use less oil, but it it ke- keeps using the same amount. Well, so are I, these,
2: I, I stand corrected. There are three possibilities. It can either be <laughs> blowing past the rings, it can be burned in combustion, or it can be leaking out. But usually, when it's it. leaking out, it's pretty obvious because it makes a huge mess. Yeah, so that did, that
8: did happen one day. I went around after a flight, and on the left-hand side, there was oil all over it. So it was all, it was an event all of a sudden, and then we fixed that. Yeah, and you uh, just
3: have bad luck.
8: So
4: (laughs) are these the flexible oil lines to the cooler that the AD references?
8: I don't know about the AD, but they are are red, had that red material over it. the,
4: The fire sleeve, yeah, the flexible lines. There's an AD that for the remote mounted oil coolers, you have to check those hoses. So you want to make sure that that gets done. But nevertheless, I don't think that that's really the issue. So a quart an hour is enough to coat the entire airplane one court, I'm telling you, you park the airplane, and it'll leave a beautiful silhouette of the airplane on the hangar floor. And, yeah, you know, no, not it's, not, it's not
8: anything like that. I mean, we yeah. cleaned it from that hose problem, and I mean, I haven't actually got up under there, but I'm around it checking fuel and so forth, and I don't think there's anything like that under there. Yeah.
4: It seems to me like uh, if this happens suddenly, I have had several cases where the oil return through the pistons gets clogged and we'll often use a uh, a ring wash as a way to identify which one has done that.
2: Yeah. Sometimes it fixes it, but sometimes it doesn't, but at least tells you where the problem is. Yeah. So there's, you have oil and cylinder walls and that oil has to return back to
4: the sump. And if that return path is blocked then all it can do is burn the oil in that cylinder, and that can make a drastic change in the oil consumption. So you can do a ring wash where you put a concoction of liquids into the cylinder with the valves closed and bring the piston up on compression. This is like doing a compression check, but with liquid. And the oil, or excuse me, this concoction of liquids should just flow through. You should be able to pull the piston up to compression and all this liquid just flows through and it goes down into the sump. But if you've got a blockage, it'll come up and it'll make like a hydraulic lock. You don't want to blow the cylinder head off with it, but it may clear it. Sometimes you can get it to clear. Oftentimes it doesn't. But what you've done now is you identified the one cylinder that needs to come off, maybe two, instead of all four. And no, it doesn't mean you need to do all four. You know, let's let's do one if we can and save an awful lot of effort and exposure. Absolutely.
2: Good, good. And and in, in some cases the, the 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 ring wash actually will will solve the problem, but if if it's very very badly sludged up, the ring wash may not be able to resolve it. But at least it will tell you which cylinders uh, are are the ones that are causing the problem. We've written up a, a really good detailed description on this ring wash procedure because a lot of mechanics are not familiar with it, and the URL is read my lips here. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's bit.ly slash solvent flush. Well, thanks
3: so much, guys. Uh,
2: Very helpful. I love the program.
3: Well, thank you. And I hope you solve that problem soon before that oil consumption bankrupts you. (laughs) I know that's right.
5: (laughs) I know
8: that's right.
3: (laughs) Okay, you take care, Robert. Bye-bye. Thank you.
8: Good luck, Robert.
3: Well, that's a wrap on another fun podcast. We know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we would love to hear from you. Give us your ideas on what you'd like to hear. You can send your questions and comments to podcasts at AOPA.org. Fly safely, enjoy the good weather, and have fun. We'll see you next time. See ya.
2: Bye, everybody.